0: hello honeys and welcome to our second deep dive episode of the year if you've been paying attention to the business releases the last couple of weeks you'll know already that there's been a ton of things happening in art art history anthropology the museum and gallery worlds already this calendar year but because this is a uh, longer deep dive style episode, we're going to be focusing on something that encompasses kind of past and present. We're going to be looking at, not unlike how we did with the evolution of Judith back in episode three, the evolution instead of David, as in David and Goliath, how his evolution not only described different artists' own styles and interpretations of the figure, but often also reflected the societal standards, often of masculinity and masculine beauty, as well as the ideology of the figure, the public sentiment of David at various times. And without further ado, let's get started. Of course, this would not be highbrow honey and a good academic source of knowledge if we didn't cite our sources, so quick rundown because this week's list is nice and short. First up, an article titled Four Iconic Depictions of David and Goliath in Art, published by Invaluable.com on March 17th of 2020. Next up, an article by a person with the last name Alan, Titled Workshop of Francesco, David, and Goliath in Finelli Italian Renaissance and Baroque Bronzes in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York, published in the year 2022. An article titled David by Bernini by the Borghese Gallery of Italy, undated. An article titled Donatello's David by the Victoria and Albert Museum of Britain, also undated. Then we have an article titled Donatello David by Dr. Beth Harris and Dr. Stephen Zucker appearing in both Khan Academy and Smart History. The Smart History version is dated to July 12th of 2015. Next, we have the Humanism Definition page from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. No uh, attribution, no date on that and also an article by Jonathan McAlloon titled Did We Miss the Point of One of the World's Most Famous Sculptures, produced by Artsy.net in November 8th of 2018, and last but not least, Amy Ticannon's Goliath entry in Britannica.com. First of all, I have to admit, this is a little weird to be talking about David's and not have it be my cousin David. If I ever start giggling during this episode, it's probably just because I'm mentally reconciling the different Davids that I do or do not know that are or are not statues. Shout out to my cousin, though. First, let's cover the basic story of the man, the myth, the legend, the biblical figure of David. Why exactly it is that he was such a standout for so long according to biblical texts the story goes that one day a group called the philistines come to david's town in order to wage war against saul the first king of israel whose reign is estimated to be about 1021 to 1000 bce and they bring this giant along with them in order to ensure their victory the giant though being a big old prideful dick insists that someone must beat him in single combat and finally after many days of everyone else chickening out a young shepherd named david steps up to the task armed only with his sling and some pebbles he challenges the giant the philistines are like "Ah, okay go ahead dude and david one shot kills the giant straight giant straight up dies via singular stone to the head The Philistines are shocked, all but pee their pants, and retreat with haste. The giant's arms are then put on display as trophies in a local sanctuary, because decaying flesh is always a super peaceful thing to have around, and David wins the giant's sword as a prize. Even though part of the story is to encapsulate the idea of the sort of miracles that God with a capital G in the Christian sense can provide. If you've never seen a video of someone using one of these full-size rock-loaded slingshots, not just a little handheld toy like out of Stranger Things, but a real slingshot, go look it up and you will understand exactly how David one-shot killed this giant. I saw a video of them recently and it's truly insane, mind-blowing, how lethal those things really are. Although he's a very frequent situational reference these days, the figure and story of David were very popular from the 1400s on because of his core traits, his representations of humility, courage, faith, or piety, and just the underdog nature of the story, which made him a very inspiring figure for artists to return to time and time again for reinterpretations. And speaking of reinterpretations, let's go ahead and get into our progression of artistic evolutions of the figure and their relationships to their individual contexts. Our first sculpture of David today is one by Donatello, an artist living 1386 through 1466, and this sculpture is simply titled David, dated to the 1440s. It is a bronze cast currently in the Museo Nacional de Bargello in Florence, but it was originally made for a private residence. The sculpture is five feet tall and nude except for a decorated hat and boots. He holds a sword and is standing with one foot on top of the head of Goliath. Decapitated head, that is. His facial expression is unclear and has been a source of debate amongst art historians for a long time, with some suggesting that the expression is prideful, others saying coy, others saying thoughtful. What's sort of fascinating about this one is that it's one of three versions that Donatello made across his lifetime, each with its own distinctive features and potential meanings. In all of the three, David stands triumphant with one foot atop Goliath's decapitated head, but there are some important comparisons to be made between the bronze cast of the 1440s and the marble version done in 1408 through 1409. The earlier version, as I said, is done in marble, but it stands at about six feet tall and is fully clothed. This one was commissioned for the top of a buttress of the Florence Cathedral. It also stands in a classical contrapposto, which is basically a position where the hips and shoulders are angled dynamically as if the figure is rolling their weight towards one hip. But this one has a whole lot more gothic stoicism as well as bodily elongation. Unlike the later version, the face is totally emotionless and the body language is completely absent. The differences between these two versions of the same biblical figure by the same artist suggest a evolution in his emphasis on expressions by the figure, not only just looking realistic in the sense of having a sense of weight and motion in the body but also of emotion and psychology throughout the face and the posture. There's much to be gained from Donatello's bronze version as an individual though. According to the Victoria and Albert Museum although the bronze version became a symbol of good government many years before quote By 1510, an inscription was added to indicate that with God's protection, it was possible to defeat even the most terrible of foes. This combination of both religious and political meaning seems to have appealed to Cosimo de' Medici, the head of the influential banking family. He was actually probably the commissioner of the Bronze David. He would have asked Donatello for it about 10-15 to years before they guesstimate. Donatello's Bronze David became famous and is significant as the first unsupported standing work of bronze cast made during the Renaissance and also the first freestanding nude male sculpture made since antiquity. So there's a lot of significance here. Materially, it's significant because bronze was the most expensive of sculpting mediums at the time. It was infrequently used for centuries by this point. It had fallen out of popularity. So the bronze becomes associated with eternity and authority, as well as a classical past. It allows the sculpture to become a Medici status symbol in the form of its commission, that they could afford such an expensive work. This one also would have stood opposite a bronze version of Judith and Holofernes. In combination, the two sculptures would have read as a warning and a symbol of the Medici's prominence and influence within the Florentine Republic. The fact that this David is freestanding also makes him seem a little more real, a little more mobile. It also foreshadows a return to Contrapposto and other dynamic positions through and beyond the Renaissance era. The sculpture is also really notable because of its unusual androgyny and delicacy of the figure of David. According to McAllen, quote, when viewed from behind, it's almost impossible to tell what gender or sex the figure is. His hair is long and luxurious, and judging by the traces of gilding, was originally presented as gold, end quote. This feminization of the figure Or at least youthfulness, prepubescent look, indicates that David defeated the giant through the power of God and his personal will, rather than physical strength. This is a sharp difference from both past and future interpretations of the figure. So Donatello's Bronze David shows the adoption of a couple of Renaissance concepts, embodies them even. One is humanism, a growing field and perspective within the artist and renaissance society at large. At the risk of sounding like a really bad writer, I'm going to refer to a couple of dictionary definitions here, those by Oxford and Merriam-Webster, to describe humanism. It was a movement which turned away from medieval scholasticism, In order to stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, to emphasize common human needs, and to look for rational rather than spiritual or religious means of solving human problems, it really stressed the dignity and worth and capacity for self realization through logic of every individual. Obviously, the idea presented by this weak-looking sculpture that David defeated the giant through personal will is very much in line with humanist thinking. Donatello's David also reflects classicism, another major thought of the Renaissance, which advocated for a return to ancient Greek and Roman styles of architecture, literature, craftsmanship, as well as principles and philosophies. The evidence of classicism is very visible in the use of contrapposto, which came from antiquity. The Greeks and Romans also loved themselves some male nude sculptures, so it harkens back to their, let's say, admiration for the beauty of the male form. However, as I sort of suggested before, this interpretation of David is kind of gay, and many scholars agree. McAlloon argues that Goliath's helmet shows a relief of cupids pulling a chariot in which another one is riding, which is an illustration of the triumph of love, combined with the suggestive nature, as he says, of this sculpture, suggests to him that David may have defeated Goliath in this version through seduction, and says that it just shows an unusual amount of swagger and vanity, which is true. There's also lots of evidence that Donatello himself was um, under the queer umbrella, let's just say, and also that 15th century Florence itself was pretty well known for a fairly obvious, widespread, and tolerated gay culture. Of course it is a debate though, and some of the counter-arguments suggest that the nakedness is supposedly related to the original text in which David refused armor offered by King Saul to fight the giant in order to face his foe only in, quote-unquote, the protection of God, as they phrase it. There's also the argument of the antiquity precedent. Lots of their male sculptures were nude too. I also saw an argument that this sculpture would have originally been placed much higher up than the viewer's eyes, so he would have been looking down on them, them looking up towards him. Supposedly, looking up at the figure, his expression changes from coy to confident. I have nothing appropriate to say about this, and I'm pretty sure you all know why. The sculpture is also kind of striking because of this stark contrast between the sensuality and beauty of the David figure and the gruesomeness of the detached head below his foot. All in all, Donatello's David reflects the Republic of Florence's self-perceptions in this time that they are blessed by God like David. Donatello shows David victorious standing on the head of Goliath as a sort of nationalistic display. In their Can Academy production, Harris and Zucker say, quote, "Like David, Florence was the underdog that withstood repeated attacks from Milan, and yet, like young David, thanks to God's favor, Florence was victorious—or at least that's how Florentines interpreted those events." As a result, many Florentine artists will tackle this subject. End quote. Next up, possibly the most famous David of all, Michelangelo's marble version from 1501 to 1504. It currently stands in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Florence. The artist himself lived from 1475 through 1564. This version of David stands at over life size, 17 feet tall, and the head and the hands are disproportionately oversized in order to draw the viewer's attention to them. That's because Michelangelo wanted viewers to focus on the power of the hands that defeat the giant and the steadiness of David's gaze, the sharpness of his wit, which will ensure his victory. This version of David was always intended to be public, unlike the bronze one by Donatello. Michelangelo, ever the rebel, made a really standout work by choosing a unique point to represent David in this story. He shows the hero before the battle begins. When he's got no guarantee of victory, he's at the moment of decision to take on the giant. He's gearing himself up and conquering his fears before battle, and this is widely considered why the sculpture is so inspiring and moving. With his tense muscles, the concern on his face, his stance in Contrapposto, there's a lot of resignation to the figure and a lot of quiet courage that he embodies. There are much fewer personal connections between Michelangelo's David and Donatello's. Michelangelo's is much more focused on Florentine and Italian relations on the whole. Quote, arguably the most favored work among the art of Florence Michelangelo's David not only represented the youth, beauty, and strength that emerged from the Renaissance, but also came to symbolize the defense of Florence's civil liberties. As Florence was often threatened by rival states like Rome, the heroic figure served as an important protector as it sat in its original place in the public square outside the Palazzo Vecchio. This David also features a stronger emphasis on his. Religious, particularly Catholic, story origins. Harris and Zucker point out, quote, Michelangelo seems to be asking us to contemplate the incredibly beautiful David. And through contemplating beauty, the beauty of man, God's greatest creation, we come to know God, end quote. I don't know about that, but could very well have been the artist's thought process. Next up, the David made by Bernini. Sixteen twenty-three to twenty-four. This is another marble version, currently in the Borghese Gallery and Museum of Rome. Bernini himself lived fifteen ninety-eight through sixteen eighty. Bernini's David stands at life size, five foot six. It's commissioned by the Cardinal Scipione Borghese. Bernini's David has a real sense of action about him because he's shown in motion. His muscles are flexed and he's bent over at the waist in order to gather up his core strength, twist his whole body in order to use all of his muscles. In this throw he's just about to make with the sling, there's a lot of exertion and concentration on his face. And a unique thing about this sculpture and a turning point in art history in general, rather than having a clear front or designated perspective to view this sculpture from it contains details and surprises from every angle in order to encourage 360 degree viewer movement around the statue both of those aspects of the work the fact that it's a motion shot and the 360 degree view are directly related to the context in which it was produced of course By this point, we have moved on to the Baroque era of art history, and using the space around the sculpture and controlling the viewer movement through the positioning of space in the sculpture, through having different details at different viewpoints, that's all a very Baroque concept and a very Baroque way of designing artworks and sculpture. Harris and Zucker say of this, quote, Baroque art wants us to be able to relate to the image in our bodies, not just our minds. Empathy is important to Baroque art, end quote. And that includes physical empathy as well. But on the emotional side, this extreme consternation on David's face, this mid-battle fight-or-flight tension in in his expression and in his mid-movement body language Can be very effective to a viewer who then can imagine themselves in the middle of this struggle, what that wind up would have felt like, what the fear of missing would have felt like. In regards to the mid motion aspect of this sculpture, it represents a move onwards from the 15th century image, which showed him in the middle of the heroism, the glory, the success. The 16th century, rather, Was all about showing the dynamics of the body, the mental tension and emotion, the movement, especially in this story. Because of the position of the body and the direction of David's gaze, one gains a sense of where the giant is, so to speak. And this brings the viewer even further into the narrative of the story by positioning them, quote unquote, in the middle of the two david and goliath and making it clear what exactly is going to happen next rather than starting the story as michelangelo does or finishing it as donatello does bernini focuses on the climax again the baroque era is where we really start to see the introduction on a large scale of compositions that emphasize diagonal body lines, crunched or extended figures instead of relatively stable and immobile uprights like we see in the Renaissance. Some scholars have also argued for a relationship to its spiritual present. They say that Bernini's David could be fighting an enemy in the same way that the Catholic Church was beginning their battle against Martin Luther at the same time. The final and most recent David sculpture that we'll cover today is created by the Finelli workshop titled David and Goliath, and it's a seventeenth century bronze cast currently at home in the Met. The dimensions of this work are about seventeen and a half by eight and three quarters by nine and a quarter inches, or for my metric system users, forty four point5 by twenty two point two by twenty three point five centimeters. So this one's much, much smaller than the previous examples we've discussed. The Met's own descriptions, as well as the images, show us that this work is kind of a triangular format, wherein David braces one knee on Goliath's back as Goliath is sprawled on the ground trying to twist away, apparently already having been hit by the rock. David's right arm is raised high, ready to stab a sword through the head or neck of the giant as the final killing blow, whose head he pulls back by the hair. This version is unique-ish, because it has multiple points of view, like the Bernini example, but it's also unlike most of Fenelli's other work. It, like Bernini's version, is centered in the middle of the action of the story, just as David is about to finish Goliath off, and unlike, again, Michelangelo or Donatello's versions, which are at the start and end of the narrative, respectively. This sculpture's structure is really important in the history of art because, quote, the dynamic pyramidal group is known in only one comparable example. Formerly in the Gustave de Rothschild collection, which was illustrated by Wilhelm von Bode and is sometimes confused with our bronze says the met quote a smaller and more summary version in the pushkin museum of moscow represents a later generation of the model so this sculpture is one of very few of its kind and also demonstrates within the finelli workshop the evolution of their how they made art how they styled different sculptures and represented the action in different stories. Of course, art is meaningless without context. This particular version is English and not Florentine or Italian. So it represents key differences in the interpretations between the two geographic regions that are based on the King James Bible use in England. According to the Met. David Howarth cites Abraham van der Dort's 1639 inventory of the British Royal Collection, who said that a David and Goliath like this was displayed on a windowsill in the chair room of the Whitehall Palace. So it's more than likely that this particular sculpture has a pretty neat history in and of itself. Because of the differences in these two national versions of the Bible Fanelli is able to make this decision to take a few steps back in the narrative from the moment of the victorious David that is so much more frequently represented by Italian artists, and instead chooses the final action moment, the second half of the double tap in this death blow. The Met notes that, quote, the group acts out verbatim key passages from the King James translation of the Bible, 1611 a recent publication at that time. A quote from within that version of the Bible says, David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and slew him and cut off his head therewith. That is the first chapter of Samuel 1751, if I'm reading my biblical citations correctly. So once again, we're seeing the effects in this work of not only the temporal context, exactly what was going on at the same time as this work's production, but also the geographical effects. If Fennelli had not been influenced by the King James description of the final takedown, he would not have created this work. So we can actually... Attribute literature to this change in the visual arts, and that's a really neat kind of cross medium connection. As time went on and international relationships stabilized, lots of nation states as we know them today became incorporated. David becomes a less and less popular figure in visual arts, especially after the Baroque era, which roughly encompassed the 17th century. Several of these individual David statues, particularly Michelangelo's, have reached icon status. And the story of David and Goliath remains a very popular one. Allusions to underdogs, you know, slingshots, unlikely heroes, Davids, all of that still very much remain. But ultimately, what we've seen here today is that, like many biblical figures, the figure of David's meaning throughout our history. Has been adapted according to not only socio-cultural context but also the influence of specific artistic movements and at times even on top of all that individual artistic motivations the evolution of david as we see here and judith as we saw in her episode highbrow honey's third and even tons of saints and other popular figures with specific narratives their evolutions always relate to their context in some way. And because nothing ever stays the same in art history, the evolution of the figure of David in all these different statues and all these different positions, materials, so on, it's all an important reminder that all art comes from its time, place, and ideological setting. It's also cool for that reason, to see how different materials, styles, bodily emphases, like the exaggeration of the hands in Michelangelo's David, and so on, literally embody such differences in the significance of the story to each artist, as well as to each regional situation and audience. All right, honeys, that is our episode for the week. We will, of course, have a business dropping on Tuesday, our third one, so keep an eye out for that. Hopefully you've learned something new about the man, the myth, and the legend of art history that is David and his many statues. Once again, shout out to my cousin, one of the original three musketeers, and I hope to talk to you all again soon. Take care, honeys. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugnow. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.